Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of Four Good Startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a Four Good Startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Amelia Molimpakis is the co-founder and CEO of Themia. Amelia has spent over a decade studying neuroscience with a specific focus on using language as a marker to assess a monitor mental health. The current method for assessing mental health is super basic, subjective, and it hasn't changed in over a decade. So after her best friend suffered depression and tried to take her own life, Amelia created Themia, combining her passions for linguistics, gaming and mental health. Themia uses video games to track micro-expressions to assess someone's mental health state more accurately and objectively, which means clinicians can use their limited time on what really matters, diagnosing and treating their patients. And this is just the start, as Amelia explains how Themia can become the global gold standard for mental health assessment. Hey Amelia, thanks for chatting with me today. Amazing, thank you so much for having me. No problem. So I always like to start a little bit with like background and I obviously did my research, saw you've been studying and working in the neuroscience field for over a decade. I was just keen to understand like what, what led you to that space, what attracted you to it? Oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I guess I've been the CEO and co-founder of Themia for almost two and a half years now. But before that, as you mentioned, I was actually in research. So I specialized in cognitive neuroscience and linguistics for 12 years or so. And basically what that meant was for the duration of that time, I really had the pleasure of working with all kinds of patient populations and starting with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, vascular dementia, and moving over in time to aphasia post-stroke, and then finally into mood disorders such as schizophrenia and depression. What really attracted me to the space was initially... Well, I've always had a very keen love of language and languages. My parents own a private language school back in Greece. So I was always exposed to a lot of language learning, very, very interested in how, you know, intrinsically different languages work and the kind of the overlap of the different syntactic structures and how meaning is different in different cultures and sub-meaning, et cetera. And that kind of, so it meant that when I went to university initially, I studied linguistics and then I had this amazing amazing professor in neurolinguistics who gave me the opportunity to go and work with her at a hospital to look at Greek-speaking patients with Alzheimer's and how they use structure differently. And I was just so blown away by that. I was like, okay, this, this is brilliant. This is exactly what I want to do. And so I kind of like fell into that and then just stuck with that. And, you know, I've, I've loved it ever since. Wow. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to ask you a little bit more in detail later on about how the how you're able to kind of assess people's mental health around their, their use of language. But but first, I was just going to chat to you more broadly about mental health and people's mental health. And this is going to be quite a broad question. But I just wondered, in your opinion, if, if you think kind of the state of people's mental health is getting better or worse, because if I look over the last few years, like I've seen a huge improvement in terms of like awareness and acceptance and importance of mental health but we've also seen like huge stresses in terms of you know the pandemic cost of living climate change so do you feel like where do you think we're at in terms of current state I think it's a very interesting one I think there's kind of like multiple pressures kind of resulting in these numbers I think overall probably everyone would agree that the number of people exhibiting not just depression, but other types of mental health disorders or conditions or just symptoms, essentially, is growing and it has been growing. I think the latest kind of metrics are that it has about a 16% compounding annual growth rate. Unfortunately, COVID has actually meant that the number of people with depression has actually doubled outright, which is horrific if you think about it. But I think you're kind of seeing, we're seeing the result of A, an increased awareness of mental health. So probably there were quite a few more people in the past who had mental health issues, but were not either aware of it or being picked up on or being diagnosed properly. So there's that, which kind of means you have bigger numbers, but also just genuinely the stress of life and the all the unusual and interesting events, to put it mildly, that everybody's been going through not just with the pandemic, but before like global warming, you know, financial crises, the past 10 years have been exceptional in so many ways. 
it's bound to have an impact on people's mental health. So you're kind of seeing the compounding effects of multiple stressors. And yeah, the, the result is more and more people are experiencing mental health issues, but actually, unfortunately, the healthcare system is not accelerating at an equal pace to be able to, to tackle this. It might surprise you to find out that actually psychiatrist numbers are shrinking instead of growing at this point because stress does get to them as well. And the, the job they have to do is getting worse and worse. And so actually, you know, this is making the issue even, even worse overall. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, that was a really tough question to fire at you <laughs> quite early on in the conversation. No, no worries. But no, no. Good answer. And I was going to ask you also to shed some light on, in terms of how like mental health is currently assessed and treated, could you share like how that works currently and, and some of the problems associated with that right now? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I guess it's, it's, uh, it's important to clarify that there isn't one particular path that all countries follow around the world or all professions follow. So that makes this a little bit more disjointed if you look at it. But say if we focus on the UK, which is probably what most listeners are, where most listeners are based. If we say focus on mood disorders, because again, mental health is so broad, you have everything from things that affect your mood, such as depression or bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, all these different things. You have anxiety disorders, but you also have so many others, including neurodevelopmental ones like autism, ADHD, like things that come up while you're growing as a child, but also neurodegenerative disorders. So things that appear older, later on in life when you're older. So Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, each of them is a little bit different in how you diagnose and how you monitor. I guess I'll, I'll just pick depression as one because I think there's a lot of pressure there that isn't being really addressed. So at the moment, the gold standard that GPs and psychiatrists have for uh, diagnosing and monitoring depression is basically two things. They have their own observation skills, which could be better or worse, depending on you as a clinician and your expertise. And you also have questionnaires. Those are kind of the two things that you have as a clinician. Unfortunately, there isn't really widely available anything you know, anything like a blood test or a blood pressure cuff or a thermometer for depression in some way. So really, you just have questions. And to give you a concrete example, the typical questionnaire everybody uses is called the, the patient health questionnaire, so PHQ. And then there's a, a number at the end which indicates the number of questions. So it's in the PHQ 9. And these nine questions, each one um, aims to target a symptom of depression. And it's, you need to rate it as a patient on a scale of one to four. And it basically goes, so I'm the clinician, you're the patient. If I suspect you have depression, I'll start asking you, okay, you know, could you rate for me in the past two weeks on a scale of one to four, how often did you feel sad? And so the patient says one, one to four. And you kind of go through that and it's, there's elements of sadness, elements of outright depression, your appetite, your sleep patterns, different things. And then at the end, you get a score based on that number. Now, unfortunately, as you can kind of guess from what I just asked you, um, these questions have been found to be not just very subjective. It is up to you as a patient to decide how, how you rate from one to four. They're also quite leading. Like I'm assessing you for whether you're sad. I'm asking you, are you sad? I'm assessing you for whether you're depressed. I'm asking you, are you depressed? And so actually it's been found that clinicians, uh, not clinicians, patients can incredibly easily manipulate these questions. So if I want medication, I will basically know what to answer. If I want to show that I'm fine, I'll know what to answer. The worst question is one that aims at suicidality and basically asks you outright, do you feel like hurting yourself or ending things? Now, most patients have this intrinsic fear when they're faced with that question is, oh my God, A, am I going to look crazy if I say yes? B, what does it mean if I say yes? Am I going to be institutionalized? Is this going to have an impact on myself and my family? And then the CDE, there's so many other questions and fears you have, you automatically say no to that question or like rank it really, really low. And so as a result, actually, it takes an astounding 10 to 13 years to diagnose someone properly with depression and to also find the right treatment for that person. So... You can imagine, <laughs> 10 years is a long time. And throughout that time, people try different medications. And unfortunately, it really is a trial and error process. So you go to the GP, you do the questionnaire. Most of the time, you'll be flagged as not having anything. 
if you are flagged as having depression, they'll just randomly put you on an antidepressant, which isn't very well understood. It's not matched to you as an individual. And you can't actually monitor how well it's doing to help you. Finding all of that, antidepressants in particular take six to eight weeks to actually start to have an effect. So if I start taking as a patient the antidepressant, for six to eight weeks, I won't know if there's an effect because I won't feel it. And what's more, some of these, depending on the patient, may actually make you feel worse. So I may actually get even more suicidal in those six weeks and nobody's monitoring me. Nobody has a way to see what's happening. And so it's really on the family or myself to be able to see and to intervene, which is very hard to do. So it's a very, very problematic, broken system. You can't point at the clinicians or anyone to say, hey, you know, this is, this, you know, a failing on their part because it's not. That's all they have to hand. It is very much a broken system. And so that kind of was also the real intrinsic motivation of why we built Themia. So the idea of Themia to clarify to, to listeners as well is we essentially monitor patients and assess them before, during and after each appointment through specially designed video games. And these games aim to elicit data from three different types of streams. So we switch on your microphone, your camera, and we also observe you during the game, like your behavior. So we're gathering elements of your speech, elements of kind of your facial micro expressions, movements, twitching, eye movements, and then finally your behavior in the game in terms of reactions. And this allows us to kind of pull out more objective measures of different cognitive aspects that are affected in depression. So we're trying to pinpoint the same things that the PHQ-9 is doing, but in a much more objective way, in a way that the patient can't manipulate, and in a way that they don't feel cornered or pressured or scared to admit, let's say, suicidality. And so it's, it's, it's a very, very kind of convoluted, problematic, like so many, so many highs and lows of the system in general. And unfortunately, it hasn't changed. Like these questionnaires have been around for literally a century. It, it's, it's astounding. It really is astounding. It's like, why have, has this not changed? And yeah, I guess that's kind of like, for me, I, I, I guess you can kind of hear it in my voice or in how I'm responding to this. It really strikes a, a chord with me personally, because while I was a researcher doing all, you know, my own research on language, I, I didn't really ever intend to to start my own company, I, I kind of witnessed my best friend go through this whole system. And she was an academic while, while I was an academic. And I kind of, she started to show signs of depression. And none of us really thought anything of it because it's so common. And I was like, oh, well, okay, she'll, she'll go see her GP. She'll see a psychiatrist. She'll be fine. Only unfortunately, she wasn't. And so she saw a GP. Then she went privately to see a psychiatrist. And her psychiatrist asked her the same questions. And my friend, being an academic, being bright-minded, being everything she was, she didn't, you know, express to the full extent just how bad her condition was. And then just two days later, she ended up trying to take her own life. And when that happened, we were meant to be meeting that day and she didn't show up. And so I went to her house to find her and I, I found her. And thankfully, I found her before it was too late. But... It meant that, you know, had I not been there, it, you know, it would not have ended as well. And it was very, as you can imagine, very traumatic to, to experience as a, as a best friend. But really what, what the surprising thing was, was that, you know, her psychiatrist literally saw her two days before and the, the system failed, essentially. And that's true of so many other people. It's, it really is a broken system in so many ways. Yeah, no, and it's, it's it's so scary how broken it is because you've got like a such a basic form of assessment that doesn't even really work. You also have this situation where you have really vulnerable people that probably are really scared to go and have these conversations, being you know treated in a way where it's not very supportive potentially, like just being asked to no. fill out form almost. It's, it's not a great experience to have yeah. if you're someone that is really struggling. And then the ongoing bits you you explained, and and you also just flagged the reality of the situation is that we don't have months or years with a lot of people to, to get it right or assess people properly so it's a really important space that we we need to fix quickly which and you've just explained how Themia go about helping with that solution in terms of the the concept of Themia obviously you've been studying this space for a number of years was there a certain point where it was like the idea for Themia came or was it after you finished your studies or was it the experience you had that you just explained with your best friend that was like the major trigger for actually need to go and build a product to solve this 
Yeah, I think, so what happened was a little bit of all of that, essentially. So when this whole experience happened with my friend, I was I was doing my, my postdoc and looking again at how certain populations use language. My focus was more on, on comprehension. So looking at how they understand different syntactic structures and meanings of words, et cetera. And so I was already kind of looking at that and focusing on depression. But at the same time, I was working actually with a very small gaming company as a consultant, helping them develop their own game where the levels got progressively harder based on neurolinguistics. So I was kind of using all the, the, the processes I knew to make the game just more interesting and harder for a general population, no one in particular, but just, just generally. And so it kind of was a very serendipitous alignment of different events. So I think had this happened with my friend earlier, when I wasn't so knowledgeable about depression, probably this wouldn't, I wouldn't have moved in the, in the same way. And had it, I not been involved with games at the time, it wouldn't have clicked. So I remember actually having suddenly this, not exactly an epiphany, but it was kind of thinking, well, actually I am manipulating certain elements in the game to make it harder. If I tweaked these elements further, I could actually isolate depression symptoms. Why don't we do this? It's such a cool way to do it. And I actually am a gamer myself. I've always been one. I've always found games very soothing. And my best friend was also a gamer and she found games calming and stabilizing. So I thought, well, actually, this makes a lot of sense. Why don't we combine these things? And so that kind of was the bringing together of the different things for Themia as an idea. And yeah, I just kind of quickly made up my mind after this happened with my friend, quit my postdoc, joined an accelerator program. The idea was pretty much fully there in terms of we need to we need to isolate behavior patterns and we need to isolate language elements. What wasn't there was all of the computer vision or visual elements because that was not my expertise. I knew you could do it, but I didn't know how to do it. And that's where meeting Stefano actually really helped on that front because Stefano, my co-founder, he's the CTO. We had met on the accelerator program. He's, he's got such a different background to mine, but amazingly complementary skill set. So he really is an expert in AI and multimodal machine learning. So combining modalities. So that was very key and crucial to the idea evolving. And he'd had experience essentially in combining text with video, with this and with that. And he did it for traders on the trading floor as a quant in large investment banks. But those same models, he knew we could repurpose in Themia. And so the whole thing just kind of came together then, like within the first two weeks of us working together. And really, it hasn't really changed that much since then as a concept. Obviously, the implementation and yeah. where we're at is different now, but it all came together then. Nice. And it is, it is amazing sometimes how all these things do just, just pull together. In the in the early days, you've got an incredibly complex topic. You have, you know, technically, like you just started to touch on, it's, it's going to be very hard to build this te- like from a technology perspective. I assume it's heavily regulated as well. The first yeah. six, nine, 12 months, is it a case of just trying to build like V1 and actually get it approved so you can start using it? Or, or what was the focus in the early days? Yeah, I guess I mean it's even it's even earlier than that. Like regulatory approval can take years. It's it's a very complex path to navigate and it's different country to country and system to system. So you really need to be very focused on A what your target is, B what your geography is, C kind of like how you're going to get to that path and D big thing is resources. Like do you, can you afford consultants to help you? Do you have to do it yourself? How, how does it work? And so for the first year, what we ended up doing was we were quite slow because A, it was just the two of us to begin with for the first year. B, we had very limited resources. We hadn't raised like a a full funding round yet. So we needed to be very careful. But also C, because of my academic background, I wanted to make sure that we did something very few companies do, which is not just go and, you know, get approval as a class one medical device or go through kind of the MHRA and and the UK system or the EU system, but also just make sure that we are respecting patients and clinicians at every single step of the way. And so we had ethics committees, independent ethics committees, review every single element of our product, the language we used, every single word and sentence that is exposed 
to a clinician and the patient has been reviewed by an ethics committee to ensure that actually we're not forcing anyone to do anything. We're not making them feel uncomfortable. It's not unethical how we use the data, how we store it, how we process it. And that process took a whole year to get the approvals, but also put in place everything you need, because this is patient data and not just that, it's very vulnerable patients and very sensitive data, it's biometric data. So we needed to be fully GDPR compliant, tick all the cybersecurity, you know, tick boxes we could, get approval to use this with NHS patients, like so many approvals. So the first year was just getting those approvals in place. We didn't gather an ounce of data for more than 12 months. And then we just get, gathered everything like really quickly all together. So it's it's intense, but you do need to do that with medical devices. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And can you share a little bit about the, the revenue model? It's essentially, yeah, B2B to C product. So our customers, so maybe actually to, to clarify, we have two separate product lines, actually. So we have one product line, which is aimed more like a kind of like hardcore clinical environments. So this is what we sell to mental health clinics, to individual psychiatrists, focusing primarily on secondary care. And we sell that here in the UK, we've got clinics in Southern Europe, and we're going live with US clinics on, on you know, in, in a few days, actually. And on that front, basically, the clinic is our customer. And so we charge them on a pay per patient per month basis. Essentially, we're probably going to be changing that model to a pay per seat basis based on the number of clinicians instead. But that's one kind of revenue model. And there we sell, AI models are packaged up in two different ways. We package them up firstly as part of a really kind of big end-to-end SaaS clinician suite. So think of this as the full virtual environment you need to make the games and the activities work to their best extent. So it functions as a full kind of CRM tool, EHR system, teleconferencing. And as a clinician, you can assign activities to your patient and see the results of those activities. That's kind of the clinical product. Then we also package our product up as kind of as separate APIs. So something that's highly unique about the EMEA is the fact that we don't just aim to diagnose or triage someone for depression or other disorders. We actually go in and isolate and quantify all of the core symptoms of these mental health issues. So we're able to isolate your fatigue levels, your working memory issues, if you have mood swings or attention or concentration difficulties, we isolate all of those things. And so what we've started doing now is actually spinning out all of those isolated symptom tracking parts of the models as their own subproducts. And so we sell those kind of as, as isolated models, as APIs or widgets, and that we sell to clinicians, but also into the wellness industry. So we have contracts with large mental wellness providers who kind of package up, say, something like fatigue tracking alongside their own mental wellness interventions they already offer. And there, again, it's like pay per user per month basis. So it's two different systems, two different verticals. Makes makes sense. And on the, I guess, more the, the first model you talked about, maybe this was more of like an initial challenge, but, but did the clinics and clinicians see this as like competing or was it quite obvious as a complementary service that would actually just enhance their jobs and make their lives easier? Yeah, I think that was something that we were initially very concerned about, but the way we positioned ourselves and the class of medical device we decided to go for was such that actually it meant clinicians embraced us. So we were very, very clear from from the get-go that we didn't intend to diagnose anyone or triage for the sake of a psychiatrist. Ultimately, a psychiatrist doesn't need your help in diagnosing so much. They need your help in finding the right treatment, which is based on symptom measuring rather than just pure diagnosis. And so that's how we always positioned ourselves. And the reality is we, we, we don't believe that we should replace a clinician. I mean, we're not, there are a lot of other companies who are kind of arrogant in the use of AI and saying, you know, AI can replace clinicians. I really don't think that's true in mental health. You can support clinicians and offer them objective handles because certainly they need them. But at the end of the day, it should be their decision what, you know, what the 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 best treatment for the person is but also you know making that kind of final decision and understanding the whys and the hows of you know why someone has depression we can tell someone has really bad fatigue issues we can't tell why that might be the case that's up yeah. to the clinician and so i think this position meant 
we were welcomed by them. Like we've heard such great customer feedback, like, you know, everything from we're fully democratizing access to mental health care to clinicians actually saying they feel relieved that we've built this to help them, which has been, you know, is, is really great. I think that's quite different to what a lot of other companies try to do with biomarkers. They kind of like bulldoze their way in and try to replace yeah. everyone. And so it's it's not really welcomed as much. Definitely. Yeah, I can imagine that if, if you're a clinician with a huge workload and, and limited information to go by, it, it must feel like a godsend. To look at it from the, the patient's perspective for a moment, could you just talk to like what, what does that user journey look like from their perspective? Like what's their very first interaction with Themia to when they potentially stop using the product? Yeah, so the way we're building it out now is to try and make the whole process as easy, frictionless and compelling as possible. We are very aware we're dealing with patients a lot of the time who have anxiety or depression. We do other populations as well, but those are kind of like the the primary ones. And so there you really need to just make it engaging and quick. So at the moment, patients get an email, essentially, when their clinician signs them up for Themia activities and the Themia experience. So they get an email with a, a couple of links. One link is if the clinician's using their teleconferencing with us, then they'll get a link to go to their appointment. And they'll also get links for the different games that they've been asked to play. And so all the patient needs to do is click on the link and they get taken straight through to the game, essentially, or to the telecom. So you, it's all frictionless. They don't need to worry about logins, passwords. It's all completely encrypted, but we do it in a, in a frictionless way. And they just go, they play the video game. It lasts about two to three minutes, depending on how many games they've been assigned. So the clinician decides that. We tell the clinician what each game kind of tracks and they decide what they want the patient to play. And so then the patient plays it. It's all kind of clear that we're recording them. If they don't want to do it, they can pull out. And then at the end, it's just like, thank you very much. Your clinician has your results now and they'll share them with you when you see them. And so it's up to the clinician when they share, what they share, etc. So again, giving them all the power. We just provide the analytics and the and the games, essentially. Brilliant. And after that, that that first interaction and set of games that work through, do, do they continue that? Like do it like in between sessions with the clinician, there's that continues? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the idea is your first interaction effectively creates the baseline for you. And that is your personal baseline. And then as you go, you repeat certain games. There will be new games that come out. There will be new elements or levels of the different games. And you continue to play them. It's up to you and your clinician how frequently you do that. It's slightly different depending on the disorder. So ADHD, for instance, is different to depression. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the more you play it, the better the model gets at personalizing to you. But also the more relevant your results are for your clinician. Typically, we see patients playing once to three times a week and they mix and match the games essentially and then you kind of get like a very nice progress graph for each of the outputs of the game as a clinician and you can choose to share that during the telecon for you know separately you can print out the results all those different things and so yeah make the patient aware so the idea is you get objective handles as a clinician but also this serves as a very nice helping point for the patient to see that yes indeed my 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 treatment may not feel like it's working right now but it is i should stick to it or jointly they can see actually it's not working let's try something different and so you take it from there essentially if you're listening and thinking i'd love to work for a company like this then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you will be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Got it, got it, got it. And what, what's the what's the reception been like from from the the patients? Like, Because when I think of anything like this, like user engagement and retention and what people find quite difficult, are they actually really welcoming and it's like wow this is a really nice better way to to be working through and and you know being assessed rather than the, the clipboard with the nine questions or do you did you have drop off and it's it's a lot of work around the ux and user journey to to make it like you said really seamless yeah so i think 
we've been very fortunate or I guess forward thinking enough when we first started designing the video games, we designed them with patients and with clinicians. So everything from the color scheme, the movements, the like even the shaping of the characters in the games, they were designed and, and kind of done with patients. So it actually meant that we could get that feedback really early on. So as a result, like at the moment we've had more than 2,000 people interact with the games on the platform. We've got thousands and thousands of hours of data. And from the age of 18 to 75, we've had over a 95% engagement rate, which is which is astonishing, wow. which is fantastic. Of course, that's kind of still, it's still early because, you know, we haven't done this for, for, for a, say, a year or so to see the full drop off. We'll be seeing that very soon. But thus far, it's been received really well. I think what's quite telling is every time we have some sort of press release and we've been super lucky to have a lot of recognition in the press like i think there's been over 350 articles written on us in the past 12 months which is like astonishing yeah. in itself we're, we're super super lucky every time you do that we have at least 50 to 100 patients reach out to us per piece saying can i use this can i ask my clinician to use this we're finally at a point where we can respond yes do, do let your clinician know and we would love to, to enroll them on the platform and have you interact with us. So yeah, the response has been pretty phenomenal. This is for like depression and anxiety. We're now moving into ADHD as well. So hopefully it'll be similar there as well. Yeah, well, I, I can imagine. Like, it's just such a refreshing better way to be doing things than what you described has been mm. done for like decades looking forward <laughs> you mentioned obviously you're in the uk south europe you're about to launch in the us what are the big plans in, in the roadmap for the next like, year or two yeah so at the moment as i mentioned yeah we're, we're in the uk we're in southern europe expanding to the us actually quite quite quickly. We were intending to expand there probably in 2023, but ended up having quite a few contracts kind of fall in our laps sooner than that. So it, it felt like a completely wasted opportunity not to take advantage of those. So we're doing that as well. I think it's just kind of understanding there which of these geographies have the biggest pull and move um, the fastest and in the easiest way. So we can kind of focus on those. But then also make sure essentially the goal of Themia is to become the gold standard of cognitive assessments for all cognitive disorders and make this available really to everyone everywhere. It really is about increasing access to mental health. So it's about finding the fastest track to get there. We have looked at depression and anxiety. We're expanding to ADHD now. The aim would be to also expand in the next kind of two years to PTSD and to autism as well, since we have quite a few partners, like partnering clinics and institutions like universities who who want to work with us on that as well. So that's kind of the, the aim for the next two years to expand, awesome. expand geographically, you know, gather data from other disorders and obviously move through regulatory approvals even further, essentially. That's, uh, when you were talking earlier, like, I just thought what a what a great product and solution, not just because of the positive impact it has on people's lives, but also how scalable, like when you're talking about all the different the different routes to market, the different like companies and organizations that could use this, the application to different areas of mental health. It really seems like you've got a huge amount <laughs> where you can expand out into. To talk a little bit about your personal journey as a founder, you know, this is to my understanding your, your first startup venture. You've gone pretty much straight from, well, nearly straight from academia to kind of startup, which is a big change. What have been some of the, the biggest lessons that you've learned so far? Yeah, it definitely was a massive <laughs> jump. I think that the, there are quite a few lessons. I think the the key thing to being a first-time founder is if you can, try to do it with someone, try to have a co-founder. I know this is quite cliche or, you know, saying like going it alone is very lonely. It's this, it's that. Really, the highs of having a startup or building a startup and the lows are so extreme, it really does pay off having someone to share those with because the highs can be great the lows can be super low as well. And you do need that other person who's fully immersed in it and who can completely understand where you're coming from, what you're going through, and you pick each other up. I think that's been really, really great. I would say in terms of other learnings, key learnings would be, well, first off, there are multiple ways. You can fund a startup and you can move with a startup. Try to get advice 
and see which way suits you as an individual and you and your co-founder as, as a team and as a company. You don't need to go for venture capital funding as a startup. People always tend to think that's the best way to do it. If you're a deep tech company, it makes a lot of sense, but there are other ways to fund it as well. If you're revenue generating, then fantastic, stick to that and try to grow organically. But there are other like crowdsourcing ways of funding a startup. There are grants, there's all sorts. Venture capital is one of those systems where once you're in, it's very hard to come out. And it also has its own very complex web, let's yep. say, of, of inner workings. And I guess that kind of leads me to the to the third learning, which is really around venture capital. I think going into it, I was probably very naive coming from academia, where to the to a large extent in, in good universities it is a meritocracy. So you do well, you you do, you know, you're good yep. and it gets recognized. But it's not the case in venture capital at all. It's a very complex system and ultimately you are interacting with people who most of them, when you're when you're like a deep tech company like ours, like very, very specialized niche expertise required, they don't know most of the time what you're talking about. They don't understand it. You need to find a way to explain it to them. That took a while, trying to understand what they're looking for, realizing essentially that every investor looks at you. And all they see is a stack of risks and you need to find ways to de-risk yourself. The earlier on you are, the worse that will be, like the harder it will be. And you'll hear no's back to back, left, right and center for ages. And that's normal. That's par for the course. And you just really should not take that personally or be naive enough to think that, oh, this is going to be an easy journey because it's not easy for anyone. I think that was the biggest thing I had to learn. And it took a while. You need to you need to develop a really thick skin because you'll hear no so many times. It's very hard not to take it personally and to think, hey, maybe actually I'm not cut out for this. My co-founder isn't cut out for this. You know, we're doing something wrong. You're not. Just, you know, have faith in what you're building. You'll find the right investor, but it takes time. And I guess also there's a big thing to be said for being a female founder or being a founder from an ethnic minority. I've seen so many instances and experienced so many instances of bias against me and against other founders who are not, you know, white middle-aged male founder. The bias is so strong and it's it's in a space that is so heavily non-regulated. It's one of these very few spaces that are just completely non-regulated that you, you just see it like in such an extreme way and there's not much you can do about it. I think that took me a very long time to to stomach to the point where now I can, you know, tell the other person exactly what I think and push back. It, it's just, it can be a very unpleasant environment and I think people need to be aware of that and to, to you know, be prepared mentally, psychologically for that. You will fit face bias if you're not a white middle-aged yeah, yeah. male and even then you may do still it's a good thing that there are more diverse venture capital funds being created so say female only venture funds or venture funds who only invest in female founders unfortunately even though that sounds actually it's going in the right direction in practice it actually isn't because if i take investment from a, a female funding only VC fund, it gets looked at badly from other investors by saying, oh, you weren't good enough to get the funding from the other ones. So you went to somewhere where you have a better chance. That's actually how they perceive it, which is, is health horrific. And also the other thing is there needs to be someone externally regulating officially. There's a lot of websites that have come up now that kind of say, rate your VC as a founder so that other founders know. I've personally posted several commentaries on my interactions with certain VCs on these websites. And because they were negative, and these VCs actually seem probably to be funding some of these websites, they never got posted. So you only ever see the, the nice side. So I've had kind of some, some posts pending for a year now. So I would say there's steps being taken. They need to be taken more aggressively and probably in a better way than they are right now. Yeah. Very fair. Oh, yeah, it just makes me shake my head and just like disappointment hearing these things. <laughs> yeah. Next question, maybe a 
bit of a tough one, but I, I always find it really interesting. Like when you're running a, a business that's for purpose and for profit, that there's naturally some tension and conflict between the two. So I just wonder, like when it comes to business decisions, obviously you're, there's, there's the pressure of running a commercially viable business that's revenue generating and profitable. If you are taking VC investment, then then there's the pressure from the investors to to grow quickly. But then also there's the the driving purpose of the business of of doing good and in your case, you know, helping people's mental health and their lives. Do you ever feel there is like conflict there? And and have you had any instances where, where there have been struggles to to know which decision to make because you're going to have to compromise on one of those? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's always been something we were very, very aware of. And I think there's a lot of ways you can go about this. The key thing is to be just very, very clear at the outset with your co-founder to make sure you're aligned. Why are you building this business? Is it to quickly scale, turn a profit and sell? Is it to scale it into a you know hundred billion dollar business over the course of ten years, and you know live live very comfortably in that sense? Is it to just have an impact on you know like like be completely completely impact driven and only look for grants and stuff and don't look at profit? There's different ways you can go about it. So aligning on that is key as a first step. Then secondly, creating the core values for the team that joins you is also key so that you don't have kind of conflict within the team itself, particularly the C-suite. Everybody, like in our company, there isn't such a strict hierarchy. It's quite flat in the sense that good ideas and pushes can come from anywhere any and anyone. But for that to be true, everyone needs to be aligned on the on the purpose. You can't have someone trying to push you towards easy, quick profit in a questionable way. And that is true also of VCs, the VCs you have around you. If you are a VC-backed company, you must not let onto your board people who do not align with the vision, because ultimately that's going to have such a detrimental impact. They may give you money right now, which helps. But once you and your co-founder lose the majority, it will be down to the VCs. You know, they can make decisions for the company. And uh, I think we've seen that, like, practically, we've had offers from funds, like big check sizes, who basically said, we see what you're doing, we think it's fantastic, we think you can make a massive profit if you just sell to insurance companies and just, you know, have them charge a premium for the patients. We'll give you X amount of millions if you do this. And there it's just a question, you know, do you take the money and do it or or not? In our case, it was not. But you see other companies, big ones who are doing amazing things. I won't name names, but there, there have been very clear instances of companies looking at biomarkers whose investors on the board eventually moved them away from that into becoming another telehealth company because of profit, essentially. So it's very key to have all those different people aligned. Otherwise, you know, you will go in that direction ultimately. 100%. And I, I always ask this of any founder that I speak to around like how they manage their own mental health. And especially as you are running a mental health startup, what are the things yeah. that you put in place or you do regularly to, to help you set a good place? I think this is tricky, yeah, because we're currently in the middle of a funding round and that's always like the worst possible time <laughs> for a founder's mental health. I think like, so we were, we founded Themia back in April, 2020, just as the pandemic hit. And so we, we, we did everything virtually in lockdown. And so as you can imagine, setting up a business in lockdown, working just from home w- could have had like a massive mental health toll. So it forced us to put in place metrics or sorry, not metrics, but measures that we continue to this day. So for me, it's, I only work within certain zones. So I only work within a certain room or area of the house, like a table with a certain setup. And also I always wear work clothes when I'm doing that. When I'm done for the day, if say I'm working from home, I come out of the zone, I change into my home clothes. I don't talk about work and I don't have Slack on my phone or anything else that I use to communicate with business. That's like a no-go outside of the zones. And I found that very helpful. There has been bleeding between zones sometimes, but I'm trying to keep them separate. The other thing is to just be very, very vigilant and aggressive in setting limits, essentially. It can be so easy to just say, oh, I'll just work another half hour, another hour. Maybe I'll take a little bit of the weekend. Maybe this, maybe that. And then you just automatically, it snowballs. Uh, And that's true for 
the founders in particular, it's true for the C-suite. And if you do that, if you showed that, it can trickle down into the rest of the team and it becomes like a, it's not a very nice environment, like where you're expected to work all the time. So we've been super strict and aggressive in setting those limits for everyone. And I think holidays, so we offer, we go way above and beyond normal holiday allowance. People have many more days. We have kind of innovation days, like we have sprints and at the end of every sprint, you have kind of like 75% of a day to do anything you want, which is like a fun task, a joy task or innovation thing. So we're encouraging creativity, etc. So it's about balancing out across different areas. And also, I think, making sure to definitely prioritize your own mental health. If you don't, then the company will will you know, crumble or, or at least be impacted severely as a result. Yeah. Oh, really, really interesting. And, and I, I'm kind of listening to you and some of that stuff that really resonates with me. Like I do the same thing. I, I get up, I still shower. I get dressed as if I was, I mean, I'm wearing what I wear now. So pretty casual, but I, I mm-hmm. wear work, what I see as work clothes, like proper trousers. Whereas when I, the day's finished, I'll go throw on some sports, it's like, shorts or something and yeah i have a zone in the house the kids don't come in here really so you have to like have those those clear boundaries um yeah absolutely yeah really good advice the last section just quickly talk about is is kind of how you go about building and growing a tech for good business and, and you already mentioned some really key things earlier about the you know making sure there's clear alignment between the founders the, the really clear values which allow you as an exec team and, and just a, a company in general to know like how to operate so I'm going to talk to you a bit about hiring, actually. And I just wondered, in terms of the theme of your team right now, how big is the team? So at the moment, there's 13 of us, but we're closing our funding round now. And the aim would be basically within the next 12 to 18 months, we would more than double the team at this point. So probably going up to almost 30 people within the next 12 months or so. And that's kind of like scaling across the tech side. So it, we, we have quite a few different separate groups within the company because it's a complex business so we have like the engineering team we have a science team or research team ai ml team commercial kind of like growth and ops team sales etc so all of those are growing now at the moment in some of those teams there's just maybe one person at the moment but we're we're growing all of those i think kind of having that balance and knowing when it's key to push on one side of the business, say the tech or the AI side versus the commercial side, it's very crucial to how you spend the very limited resources you have. And I think another thing which I, it took me forever to grasp is mine and Stefano's time is one of the most valuable resources in the company. I think as a founder, sometimes you tend to think, oh, I'll take this on, I'll take this on. It's fine because I'm the founder. Actually, your time is super, super valuable and it only gets more valuable as you go and it gets there's less of it so i think yeah prioritizing your time is also super super important yeah and it might be linked to that last point in terms of how you've hired today and and i guess looking Mm. forward how you're going to more than double the team in the next like year or year and a half what channels have you used to hire so far has it been mainly direct efforts and that's why it's been quite time intensive or if you use recruiters or or other means to bring people in yeah i think Again, it, it kind of depends on the team, but typically it will be either myself or Stefano or another C-suite member leading the effort. And so whoever's leading it, the majority of their time will be focused on hiring if if that's what we're doing. There, we tried recruiters in the past. They sometimes work. It depends on the area. I think for AI, ML and engineering, recruiters really aren't that great. The best channels we've had have been kind of like online channels, like places like Cord or AngelList, where there are certain types of resumes and people looking for jobs. That's been very good. But ultimately, the best one has been our network, really. So we we, we started out with the network, then we thought, oh, okay, maybe we can do recruiters. Now we've come full circle back to network. And the best recruits we've had have been, you know, well, not 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 all of the best, but some of the best have been really through through our network. and. Probably for higher up people, I would say leads and senior people definitely go through your network. One hundred percent, yeah. If you can have someone referred or who's like known through your network, that's that's always the best place. And and likewise, I know a lot of internal yeah. recruiters. I've heard Cord is a great channel for technical sourcing. Yeah. In terms of like general things you look for when you're hiring, skills, traits, values, is there like one or two things that you look for from anyone, regardless of which function they're joining? 
Yeah, I think what's super, super important to Themia is essentially we need to see each person share some of the core values and align with the vision, as I mentioned earlier. So it's super important to us that you're not just coming to us because, you know, you want to solve a cool problem, but you don't ultimately really care that much about mental health or, you know, you could easily work in, you know, the food industry versus the mental health industry or space versus mental health. It's fine, you know, to have loads of different interests, but mental health should be one of them. If not, then you'll probably get bored or on days when the tough, when the going gets tough, you won't have that to kind of drive you. I think that's very important. But then we also look at the core values that are essential. So for us, it's super important that every person that comes into the team is governed by this value of, of respect and respect covers everything in what we do. It's respect for yourself and for your own time and for the choices you are making when you're working and you know everywhere else it's respect for patient data because we're dealing with highly sensitive data you need to treat that super respectfully don't share don't do anything that you know you wouldn't want done to your own data follow all the policies we have etc but also respect your team members and if you respect all those elements it means ultimately you'll do a good job because You'll respect your team members' time, so you won't, say, push bad code for other people to review, and you'll have respect for your own work, so you'll want to do it well. And that kind of leads on to the other values we have around kind of like ownership of responsibility, um, openness, so good ideas coming from anywhere and everywhere, and just kind of like working well as a team. Those are super important. If somebody doesn't align with those or doesn't fit, you know, they're not going to stay or they're, they're not going to be hired, or if it comes out afterwards, they're just not going to be, we're not going to be able to keep them, essentially. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, one of the values we have here is treat others how you want to be treated. And it's, to your point about respect, it's it's such a great value because it's applicable to any circumstance and people can understand how that will apply. Awesome. Well, I'm sure you like you mentioned you're going to be growing a lot and there's a lot of exciting things to happen in the Themia journey. So if someone's listening and they want to just follow the journey or they would be interested in working with you when you do start hiring, close that round off, Amelia, where, where's the best place for them to follow or, or find you or, or follow the business? Yeah, absolutely. So I think LinkedIn probably is the best place. That's where we post most often. We have a website, www. Uh, themia so that's t-h-y-m-i-a uh, dot a-i it is a little bit outdated mm-hmm. we are working on creating a, a better version but you can still send us emails through there alternatively if those two things don't work then just email info at themia dot a-i send us your cv you know send us a message if you want to be included in a study or if you're a clinician who wants to try it out just just reach out and we're always monitoring that that channel Spot well, Amelia, it's been amazing chatting to you. Like, I'm really excited to follow the journey of Themia. Thanks for listening I wish to today's episode. So if you've enjoyed Thank it, you so much. please subscribe, share this episode, and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahimi, and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time. <laughs>